Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to begin at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I'm going to ask you to join me as I pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Our Father in heaven, we, having sung of the glories of the gospel, we need your spirit to apply these truths to our lives. For those of us who belong to Jesus, that have come to Jesus by faith, that are Christians and following after him, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and nourished in the power of your word. Lord, for those that come today without a knowledge of Jesus, without an understanding of who he is, Lord, I pray that you would give faith this morning to believe. Lord, we pray for our middle school and high school students as they're, they're on their retreat weekend this weekend. Lord, as they've already opened God's word yesterday, I pray that this morning as they gather in worship, that they would see that Jesus Christ is our wisdom, our salvation, our hope. Lord, we pray for these 30 students and the adults who, who are along with them. Lord, I pray that, that today they would be confronted by being out of their normal routines. They'd be confronted with the power of your word, the work of Jesus, our Savior. And Father, we ask that you do that same work in us. As we go through the, the routines of a, of a Sunday gathering in worship, as we go through the routines of our week, Lord, that we would see the glory and the grace of Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. In 1792, gospel preacher Andrew Bryan and his brother Samson were arrested. They were taken before the city magistrates in Savannah, Georgia, because they were holding religious services. A historian continues the count. He says, with about 50 of their followers, they were imprisoned and severely flogged. But preacher Andrew told his persecutors, that he rejoiced not only to be whipped, but that he would freely suffer death for the cause of Jesus Christ. Andrew Bryan's crime? Gathering Christians in worship. Gathering enslaved men and women in worship. Pastor Bryan was one of the first enslaved men to pastor a church. But this was 1792. And yet, when beaten for the sake of the gospel, he rejoiced. He spoke to his persecutors sinfully, in evil, rebelling against the goodness of God's creation. He looked at his persecutors and he rejoiced and he said he would freely suffer death for the sake of Jesus. That combination of suffering and joy. Being able to rejoice in suffering is a lesson that all Christians need to learn. 
And perhaps there is no greater teacher than a preacher like Andrew Bryan. As the slave spirituals attest, nobody knows the troubles I see. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the troubles I've had. Glory, hallelujah. You see, what preacher Brian was telling us is that Jesus knows my suffering. Jesus is mine. He is my hope of glory. And so maybe this morning all we're really doing is walking through that, that great spiritual from the history of the church, that nobody knows my suffering except Jesus. Jesus knows what I have done. Glory, hallelujah, it's suffering and glory. And that's what Paul is telling the Colossian church. That's why these words echo across the centuries to bring hope to those who were wrongly enslaved. Paul, in verse 24 of Colossians 1, says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. He's not merely speaking about the suffering of Christ, not merely looking back to the work of Jesus Christ. He says, because I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. This is the apostle writing from prison. Imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ, he rejoices in his suffering. Because his suffering accomplishes the work of the gospel in the church in the Colossians. Now, when, when Paul says there in verse 24 that, that he fills up in his flesh, that his suffering fills up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, it, it raises the question for us, if you're, if you're careful, wait, does that mean that Jesus' sufferings weren't enough to bring people to salvation? Do you need an apostle to step in and, and take the rest? That Jesus, you know, he filled up the power bar to like 90%, but you've got to complete the rest of the level as, 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 a, as a Christian apostle? No, that's not at all what Paul is saying, and that's clear. That Jesus' death is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins. It's, it's all throughout this letter. He'll, he'll, he'll come to it again in, in chapter 2. We'll see this in coming weeks. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Paul describing when we were dead in the Gospels, that God, dead in our sins, God made you alive with Christ. God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. God forgave your sins. God took away your sins. We saw that last week in the opening verses of the book of Colossians. Look back at verse 14 of Colossians 1 that it is in Jesus Christ, the Son God loves, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Or again, we see it repeated in, in verse 20, that, it, we, that peace was made by Jesus through his blood shed on the cross. See, Paul is saying, everything you need for your salvation, look back to Jesus Christ. It is in the death of Christ that you find forgiveness, that you find peace. Paul isn't saying that, that his suffering brings people to salvation. He's saying that his suffering is a necessary part of the gospel mission going forward to the nations. That because he is suffering for Christ, people who'd never heard the gospel, like Colossians, are hearing the gospel message. Men and women are taking the gospel to, to cities where Jesus has never been heard before. And, and when you read through the book of Acts, the encounters of, of the apostles as they take the gospel to new places, often, often it ends in violence, or in prison, or in beatings. And so Paul is saying, I rejoice in suffering because my suffering is for the sake of the church. 
That's what he said there in verse 24. He said that, that he is filling up, he is suffering in regard, he is connected to Christ's own afflictions, and he does this for the sake of Christ's body, which is the church. So Paul is saying, when you look back and you see that Jesus suffered, then you realize that, but well, I'm not in a greater position than Jesus was. If this message of gospel forgiveness comes through the suffering of Jesus, then, then why would I think that, that sharing this message, taking this message, wouldn't involve suffering? And yet I willingly suffer, Paul says. I rejoice in suffering. I have joy in suffering because it's for the good of the church. It's the body of Christ. People are hearing the gospel message. But how do you normally handle suffering? Is the word rejoice anywhere in the description? Is joy a part of the way that you experience the, the suffering for the sake of the gospel? For many of us, we do anything we can to avoid suffering, to avoid even anything that remotely unpleasant. We don't even, I mean, I'm not even going to get close to suffering. I don't even want slight discomfort. And so I do everything I can to insulate myself, to isolate myself, to, to, to stay safe, to keep my mouth shut, to avoid suffering for the sake of Christ. And so how can Paul say that he rejoices in suffering? How can we be people who, who look at suffering for the sake of Christ and rejoice? I mean, see, this isn't some, some masochistic understanding that like suffering for suffering's sake is a good thing. This isn't somebody saying, I enjoy the pain. No, no, this is Paul understanding in the midst of prison, in the midst of his own suffering, he sees the work of the gospel. Because he can look backwards to the ministry of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus suffered for me. I mean, it's, it's all throughout this letter to the church, uh, uh, the, the Colossian church, that Jesus is the one who paid the redemption, the price to buy us out of freedom. How? With his own death and suffering. Jesus made peace with God. How? By shedding his own blood on the cross. So, so Paul can look back at the suffering of Christ and rejoice, knowing that that suffering brings him into glory. But, but Paul also looks forward, and, and we'll, we'll look at this in, in a little more detail as we continue. But, but look at the end of verse 27, where Paul, having looked back at Christ and the suffering of Christ, also looks to Christ in, in the future and realizes that Christ is his hope of glory. It's, it's, the, it's the message that, that that spiritual is capturing. Nobody knows the suffering except Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. But n nobody understands my suffering except Jesus. Glory, hallelujah. It's, it looks back to the death of Christ and looks forward to the hope of glory. See, Paul is committed to the gospel for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because he's connected to Christ in his suffering, he is willing to suffer himself. And so he describes his ministry in verse 25. As one who suffers in verse 24, verse 25 says, I have become its servant, the servant of the church, by the commission that God gave me. He sees himself. Paul is the greatest theologian the church has ever known, called by God to be the apostle to take the, the gospel to the nations. He is the missionary par excellence in Scripture. And yet what does he describe himself as? A servant. Because that's what he is. He's here to serve God. God, he served the church because God called him to do it. And at the end of the section that we read, he says, to this end I labor, to, make, to proclaim Jesus. To this end I labor, verse 29, struggling with all God's energy. 
all the energy of Christ, which so powerfully works in me. Do you see, Paul, every time he thinks about his ministry in the church, he remembers it was given to him by God, and it's empowered by God. And so all he's doing is the very thing God has given him to do. And so suffering becomes something not merely to, to get through, but something in which he can rejoice and say, look at what God is doing. Now, for Paul, it probably began inwardly. Look at what God is doing in me. The man who went door to door dragging men and women and throwing them into prison, and yet now, for the sake of Christ, I have the privilege of being the prisoner. And yet he sees not just what God is doing in his own life, humbling him, bringing him to the place where he can acknowledge the greatness of Jesus, bringing him to a place where he can see his alienation from God, his enmity with God. But he sees that God is at work in the church. That's what God called him to, suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul, if you suffer, then others will hear the gospel message. If you go to a place you are not wanted and you willingly endure a beating for the sake of Jesus Christ, then others will hear the gospel. Serve whatever God calls you to, because Paul sees the work of Jesus Christ in his own ministry. It's not an arrogance, though, saying, everywhere I go, Jesus goes with me. No, Paul is saying, everywhere I go, I go because Christ has sent me. Everything I've accomplished, every good thing that I've done is because it was Christ's power. I labor, I struggle, but with the energy of Jesus Christ because he is the one powerfully at work. See, Paul is committed to the gospel because of the suffering of Jesus, and so he willingly suffers. But he not only looks back at the suffering of Christ, knowing the suffering in his present, he, he, he looks forward to the plan of God, the mystery of God. That's, that's what he says in verse 26. He says, the, the, the word that God gave in, in its fullness is the mystery, verse 26, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Now, sometimes in English, we use the word mystery, which we, we use it to mean, I, I don't know. We, like, you just, like, I don't, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. It's a mystery. Like, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, like, nope, nobody can understand this. It's mysterious. And so, so when we read the word mystery here, we might think, oh, yeah, Paul's just kind of shrugging his shoulders and saying, like, I, I know it's pretty complicated, but I don't really understand it at all. But that's not, that's not what the word mystery means here in the Scriptures. But Paul is using the language, the, the New Testament uses the language that comes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, where God made the mystery of the dreams of the king known to him. And so what is a mystery in, in this biblical sense that Paul is using it here? It is a future plan that is, was previously unknown, but it's now been revealed. It's now been disclosed. It's now been shown. So, so imagine with me uh, the, the unveiling of a new, a new automobile model. I mean, it's, it's that moment when Elon Musk struts onto the stage and he says, and now, with, with, with the gathered crowd and the excitement, he says, and now, let me show you what we've been working on. And then the music ramps up and the, the laser lights begin to go and the, the pyrotechnics light up the stage and the smoke, out of the smoke, comes this glorious thing. And you think, I've never seen anything like that. What you didn't know before is now right on stage in front of you. 
take the pictures, take the, the measurements. It's, it's all in the packet that we just handed to you. What was unknown about this future plan, well, I mean, unknown to us, of course, this isn't the first time that, that engineers have taken a look at these designs. This has been in the works for months, probably years in many cases. It's been tested and, and tried and now revealed. Well, that's, that's what Paul is saying, that this mystery was kept hidden for ages and generations. This has always been the plan of God, but you just didn't know it was coming yet. But now Jesus has stepped onto the stage, and instead of smoke and fire, it's a cross that displays the plan of God. The mystery which was hidden is now disclosed. And so, so what's the content of the mystery? Because we don't shrug our shoulders and say, I, I, I don't know. Paul says it directly. He tells us what this mystery is. He's unveiled it in, in front of us. Jesus has shown us what it is. Look at verse 27. To them, it's now disclosed to all the saints, those who believe in God. To them, God has, made, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And so the first component of the mystery is, is wait, who got invited to the unveiling? Who's in the audience? Who gets to see it? It's not, it's not merely those righteous saints of the Old Testament who had been following after God. No, look out among the crowd. The credentials went out to, to people from all over the world. We've flown them in to see what, what is happening. This, this gospel mystery has now been made known, unveiled among the Gentiles, among the nations, among everybody who wasn't, wasn't already part of God's covenant as a child of Abraham. God has now made known this mystery. See, and, and it's here that we see the, the, the glorious generosity of God. I mean, last week when we were looking at, at the beginning of Colossians chapter 1, we talked about the exclusivity of Jesus, that the claim Jesus makes is that he is the only one through whom we can find salvation. He's the only one who can reconcile us to God, and, and we instinctively sort of step back from that and say, ooh, that doesn't sound very, very kind. But don't you see what, what Paul is really saying here is that, that this glorious path of salvation through Jesus is now announced to everyone, to all nations, to all people everywhere. Yes, it's exclusive in that the path only goes through Jesus, but everyone is invited. And, and that's actually emphasized if, if we look ahead at, at, at what comes next in verse 28. Paul says, we proclaim Jesus admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Did you hear the, 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 the extravagant inclusion of everyone given all wisdom? And, and actually, in the, in, the, in the original Greek, and commentators point this out, it's, it's even more explicit because it's the same word, all, used again. And it's actually used in, in our English translation, at least the one that I just read to you, it's, you only see it three times, everyone, all, everyone. But in the Greek, it's actually there four times because it's that, 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 that God, we, we proclaim Christ, admonishing all and teaching all with all wisdom so we may present all as perfect in Christ. See, the message goes to everyone, and so yes, as Christians, we have to admit that it is exclusive by faith in Jesus Christ alone, but it's a radically generous gospel message, one that Paul then realizes because it's been made known to the nations that we must proclaim Jesus. We must announce the message of Jesus. And, and that, that phrase there at the beginning of verse 28, I mean, it's almost, 
when, when you see that phrase in Scripture, I mean, it's almost technical language saying we are missionaries who announce the message of Jesus. That's what we as a church have been given, the, the ministry of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. See, Paul is saying when, when you understand this message, then it compels you to share it. Did it overflow out of you this week? Like, did your excitement about Jesus just spill out so that you had to talk to somebody about it? Now, you, m many of you knew that I, that I spent time uh, studying uh, preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse. And there was a period when I, was, when I was doing a lot of writing and I was listening to a lot of his sermons that whenever you talked to me, something about Dr. Barnhouse would spill out. So much so that my children would sometimes look at me, my daughter would say, I'd be talking about something completely unrelated, and she would say, is this going to end with Dr. Barnhouse? You know, so my, my brother came to visit, and he, and he saw the, the dissertation sitting there, and he asked me a couple questions, and it just, like, it just starts spilling out of me again. Have you spent so much time with Jesus rejoicing in what he has done for you that it just spills out of you? That everywhere you go, everyone you bump into... Everyone is what Paul says. We proclaim this gospel to everyone. That everywhere where you go, you bump into somebody, and it's, it's like you're carrying a, a bucket, and it's filled to the brim. And every time you bump into somebody, it just jostles over and spills on them. Because you keep filling the bucket up because you're so excited. Look at what I have. I have Jesus, the glory of the gospel. I have a Savior who died for me. See, who is it in your life that needs to hear this message today? That you'll walk out of here and say, I, I need to pick up the phone. I need to send that message. I need to text someone and say, hey, do you have a few minutes to talk today? Maybe it's walking through the whole gospel with them. Maybe it's just asking them a, a question about how they're doing and, and pointing to your hope in Jesus when they reciprocate and say, well, I'm fine. What's up with you? Or maybe it's inviting them to join you for our, our Christianity Explored course where we walk through some of these big questions. If it's somebody that's close by, then, then call them and say, will you join me Wednesday nights? I'll sit with you. I'll, I'll come and share a meal with you. Come and hear the, the, the story of Jesus. See, because the mystery has been revealed to the nations. We are meant to proclaim the gospel to everyone. But the mystery is, is even, even more glorious than that. It's not only, verse 27, about who's in the audience. It's actually what's, what's happened on stage, what's been revealed to us. In this, in this unveiling of the, the mystery of the gospel. Look again at the, the end of verse 27. Paul says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And so what are those glorious riches? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, in the letters of the Apostle Paul, he often uses the phrase, in Christ that you need to have faith in Christ. You need to be found in Christ or in him. It's, it's used, it's, it's through all his letters. He's saying you need to be united to Christ by faith. When you put your trust in him, then his suffering is, is the suffering for your sins. His glory is your hope of glory. But, but here, Paul actually does something unusual, something that's, that's not quite as common in his letters. He turns it around. He doesn't merely say that we are in Christ but that Christ is in us. He says, Christ in you. It's the same kind of image that Jesus used when he described to his apostles. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches, you must abide in me. 
To be disconnected from Christ is to lose all hope, to lose all life, to wither and die. But to be found in Christ, to be united to him, is to have all the blessings of Jesus Christ. I mean, you see how extravagant this is. So much that that Paul uses the word glory, a word that's meant to to be weighty and powerful, and he just throws it in there as an adjective. You have the riches of Christ. What kind of riches? I mean, they're heavenly riches. They're glorious riches. They're amazing and powerful riches because Christ is in you. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, then he is at work in you. He is your identity. And you see, then anything else you give your life to will end up disappointing you. I mean, I don't care how, how much you love your job. And, I, and honestly, your job isn't as good as mine. I, I think my job is, is the greatest. But if you, if you find your identity in your vocation, then it will at some point disappoint you. Or it will wear you down because there are more hours that could be put in. There's, there are more clients that could be called. There are more reports that need to be run. There's, there's, there's more that has to be accomplished. And so if that becomes your identity, your vocation, then it will wear you down. Or maybe when you reach the pinnacle of success, you'll, you'll think, that's it? This is all that there was? Because anything you give your life to, apart from Jesus, will end up disappointing you. But if Christ is in you, then he is your identity. He is your hope. And see, this then is where we find the joy to suffer. Because Christ is in me. Christ, my Savior, suffered for me. What could he ask me to do that would be too great? Sell all that I have? It's a small price to pay. He gave everything for me. What would be too much for Jesus to ask you to to send your children as missionaries to the far side of the world? Is that too much to ask? No, not when you see what he has done for you. You see Christ in you and Christ in them. What if God called you to leave that career that you've built your, your life and identity on and go? Is it too much to ask? Of course not. Not if Jesus is the one asking you. Because he is the one who gave himself for you. He is the one who, when you were his enemy, died in your place. He is the one who shows you the extravagance of his love in in giving up heaven and dying in your place. And so we can follow Christ even into suffering. Because we have Jesus Christ in us. This is, verse 27, the hope of glory. One commentator says, the greatest gift of Christ right now is hope for the future. The greatest thing that Jesus has given you in the present is this hope of glory. This, this, this understanding that, that, that whatever I suffer now is, is temporary. It won't last. The suffering of Christ leads to the glory of Christ. And so my suffering for his sake will lead to his glory. And one day I have the the joy of knowing that at the end of my life I will be with him. Or when Christ returns in the the hope of resurrection, I will have the the hope, the, the glory will be in my grasp. But that hope, that real certain knowledge of what is coming in the future is the gift that Jesus gives to you right now. And so how can you suffer? Because you have real hope. Not a cross-your-fingers kind of hope of, well, I, you know, maybe it'll just turn out this way. No, that's the kind of hope you have when you're, that, you're, you know, like, that your parents will remember to take you for ice cream when they promised three days ago. Like, I hope they remember. 
And, I mean, if you remind them enough, maybe they will. No, we're not merely hoping that, that something good will turn out. We are certain. We have hope. We hold on to it now. But we are certain that it is coming because it's God himself who has made the promise. And so the greatest gift we have right now is the hope of glory. Christ in you. So you are in Christ if you've put your trust in him. Christ is in you when you come to him by faith. He empowers your work. Everything you do for his sake is worth the effort. Everything he calls you to do is worth suffering for because suffering unites you to Christ. And if you are united to him in suffering, then you will be united to him in glory. See, our union with Christ, the fact that Christ is in us means that when God looks at us, when he looks at you, he sees Christ. When you suffer for him, you are united to Christ. Christ in you. The world then should see Christ when they look at you. Pastor Rankin Wilborn, who lives in California near Disneyland, he, he pictures what it is like to be found in Christ. He says, I have a friend who's Mickey Mouse. Like her job at Disneyland is she's Mickey Mouse. She puts on the, the costume. And, and, and he says, when th this is her description of, of reflecting on her time in Mickey, of being in the costume. She says, growing up, I thrived on people telling me what a great job I had done. So I thought that life meant if I'm good, then I'll be loved. But if I'm bad, then I'll be rejected. And so she says, I learned in my life as if I, was, I learned to wear a mask to not show what was really going on. And, and, and she says, my core beliefs were that I was not worthy. I was not accepted. I was not loved. And so I'd clamor and manufacture ways to elicit the positive responses I wanted from people. But she says that when she got the job at, at Disneyland, she realized something, that when you put on the costume, people don't treat you, children don't treat you like the person inside the costume. They treat you like Mickey Mouse. I mean, children would come running to her with delight. They would wait in line to stand next to her to have her, their picture taken with her. And she says, she says I, in this, I got a, a, the positive response over and over again when I put on Mickey's costume. She says, I felt safe and loved, covered in Mickey's identity. And then she says, but I also then gained a sense of what it means to be in Christ. She remembers praying inside her Mickey costume. Lord, is this what it's like to have people run towards you in joy, excitement, and eagerness? See, when people see you, they should see Christ. They should see his love. They should hear of his sacrifice. They should understand that everything about you traces back to what Jesus did for you. Every story you tell is rooted in the gospel. Every decision you make is because of what Jesus is and the mission that he's given to you. But, but you're not wearing a mask. You're not climbing inside a costume. It's deeper than that. It's much more powerful. Jesus propels you through suffering because Christ is in you. Jesus compels you to share the gospel. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. He is your hope of glory. Let's pray together.
Father, I ask that you would apply this gospel message to our hearts, that we would understand what it is to live in you, with our hope in you, our, our confidence in you. Lord, I pray that, that those who have heard your word today, who have not turned to Jesus Christ in, in faith, would, would with joy and eagerness respond to this gospel message today that they would see in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, in the, the announcement, the proclamation made to the, to the Colossians, the glorious hope of the gospel, the hope which gives us confidence now. And Lord, I pray that, that we who are followers of Jesus, who are found in him, would be willing to suffer for his sake. Lord, I pray that you would work in us by the power of your spirit, by the power that raised you from the dead, by your power directly. Lord, that you would work in us so that we would be bold in sharing the gospel with others, that we would enjoy, announce the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us turn and find our hope and comfort in Jesus. Father in heaven, we pray in his name. Amen.